Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. We begin this morning a sermon series through the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. We are going to be looking at the glory of our Savior in the events of his last week on earth before he was killed on the cross and rose from the dead. But before we dive into this reality, we have to ask the question, why are we doing this? Why study the Passion Week? Why take an entire segment of our time and go through, day by day, the events of what happened during the Passion Week? Why do that? Why study it? I think we have to answer that question because, like anything in life, discipline as Donald Whitney says, without direction is drudgery. So if we're going in a specific direction and we're working hard to go and to move and to learn and to grow without any sense of direction, then it's just drudgery. It feels pointless. And so right off the top, right off the bat, I want to set ourselves three goals that I pray every sermon would accomplish in our midst as we go through the study of the Passion Week. Uh, we could take years. I, I believe in heaven we're going to be learning about the Passion Week as we study at the feet of Jesus, literally at his feet. So we're not going to exhaust it by any means. We're going to go through each day. We're going to look at highlights of each day. We're only going to take eight weeks to do, or eight, uh, weeks, eight Sundays to do so. But I, I think that this could be something that would be so impactful to us as a church and a congregation as we stare at Christ. So three goals, as we began our study of the Passion Week, three goals that I hope to accomplish in our midst every single Sunday, and I pray that the Lord would do this work in us. Number one, I want to give ourselves to know the Passion Week. I want to give ourselves intentionally to know the Passion Week. I pray that we would know it inside and out, that we would not just become familiar with it, but that we would know it, that as we approach it, even in the spring, as we approach uh, the week where we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that we would begin to rehearse in our minds what Jesus was doing on the Friday before the triumphal entry, what he did on Palm Sunday, on Monday as he cleansed the temple and cursed the fig tree, as he taught on Tuesday in the temple. I pray that these events would become so familiar to you that you could rehearse them in your mind. Why is that? Why do I think we need to give ourselves to know the Passion Week? Well, because if you look at the Gospels, each Gospel spends around 40% of its Gospel on the Passion Week. Jesus is alive for 33 years, and you have 40% spent on one week of a man's life that he lived for 33 years. That tells us this week is absolutely imperative. Matthew is 28 chapters long, and it spends chapters 21 through 28 on the Passion Week. Mark is 16 chapters long, spends chapters 11 through 16 on the Passion Week. Luke is 24 chapters long, and spends chapters 19 through 24 on the Passion Week. John is 21 chapters long, and spends chapters 12 through 20 on the Passion Week. So if you ask the gospel writers, what is the most important week that I should sink my teeth into and remember? They would say, we gave it to you. It's the Passion Week. Passion Week, where does it get its name? 
It gets his name from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. If you guys are there, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, To these, the apostles, Christ's disciples, Christ presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. In the old King James translation of that verse, the word suffering is passion. So it would literally read, he showed himself alive after his passion. So passion is a word that means suffering. So when we say passion week, it's a little bit of a misnomer for two reasons. Number one, the entire week wasn't Jesus suffering. Uh, the, the majority of the week was Jesus's command over every single person that he interacted with. There was only suffering at the very, very end. But since the week led to that moment of suffering, and since that moment of suffering on the cross is the moment that brought about our salvation, we stare at it as an, a week of passion, a week of suffering, a week that pointed to the suffering of Christ. It's also a misnomer because we call it the Passion Week when it's actually an eight-day week, Sunday to Sunday. If you leave off the triumphal entry, you have problems, and if you leave off Resurrection Sunday, you have big problems. So it's kind of a misnomer, but that's where we get the name Passion Week. And here's what I hope to do as we talk about giving ourselves to know this week. I don't want to just know facts, though we will walk through facts. We will walk through history together. More than that, I want us to feel as if this week happened last week. I want us to feel, even as we start this morning with the triumphal entry, I want us to feel the cold air of late December in 32 AD. I want us to feel the, the rocky roads that Jesus and his disciples would have traveled going back from Jericho to Jerusalem. I want us to feel the emotions that Jesus himself felt, that the disciples felt watching their Savior in absolute stunning, staggering majesty and control, and then falling down in the Garden of Gethsemane, unable to even stand up. I want us to feel as if these events happened just last week, to put ourselves in the shoes and the sandals of the followers of Christ back then, so that we would not just know, but we would be affected by the Passion Week. So goal number one, we need to know the Passion Week. Goal number two, I want us to learn how to apply historical narrative. Learn how to apply historical narrative. Narrative is just a word for stories. I think that this is probably one of the biggest reasons why people don't like reading the Bible. They go to the Bible and they say, I really desperately need God to guide me, God to help me, God, to show me what I'm supposed to do. And then they open his word with a humble heart, ready to learn, ready to be guided, ready to be directed. And as they open God's word, they read the story of David killing Goliath. And they go, well, that's great, but that doesn't tell me what college I'm supposed to go to. That's great, but that doesn't tell me who I'm supposed to marry. I guess I shouldn't marry a giant because they might get hit in the head and have their head chopped off. This doesn't tell me how to live my life. You realize the majority of the Bible is stories. Narrative comprises 43% of the Bible. Just a little bit less than half of the Bible is stories. They're true. They're historically accurate stories, but they're stories. The next section, as far as genre is concerned in the Bible, is 33% of the Bible is poetry. So you have stories and songs that comprise the majority of the Bible. Last, definitely not least, 
But last is discourse or teaching. That's 24% of the Bible. So I think this is one of the reasons why people go to this book with good intentions. They read it, they open it, they start walking through it, and they just think, what's the purpose? What's the point? I just was reading in 2 Samuel this week. Just a bloody time in Israel's history. David's killing people, cutting off their hands, cutting off their feet, cutting off their heads. What am I supposed to do with these stories? And so my desire as we go through this narrative is to be able to demonstrate how you are to take practical application from a story. I also think people struggle with this. They struggle to apply stories correctly. Again, David and Goliath, what's the point of that story? How am I to apply that story to my life? Am I supposed to find somebody taller than me and tell them you are a dog and I'm going to let your flesh be eaten by the birds of the air? Am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to make sure that anybody shorter than me, I just run away from because who knows what they're going to do to me? I just be constantly running away from everybody. We can easily make wrong applications and then we can also just decide I'm not going to read at all. I'm just going to go to the teaching section. It's much easier to read Ephesians chapter 6 that says, children, obey your parents, uh, honor your parents, obey them. It's much easier to just say, I need to do that. That's something I can do right now. It's a lot harder to figure out what you are supposed to do as you read a story. So we're going to walk through how to apply stories in the Bible. So number one, know the Passion Week. Number two, apply stories in the Bible. And finally, goal number three, I desire more than anything, every single time we gather, everything that we do at our church, I want us to grow in our affections for Christ. I want us to grow our affections for Jesus. I want us to see him in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. This is the most important week in the entirety of human history. And that is not an overstatement. I know that I sometimes say overstatements and I sometimes give hyperboles, that's not an overstatement. This is the week upon which every other event in human history stands or falls. This is the week that brought about our salvation. Without this week, we have zero hope. And it's all because of our Savior in stunning, towering grace and glory, winning for us a perfect record of righteousness, dying the death that we deserve, taking our penalty for our sin on the cross, dying in our place, offering us this beautiful exchange, our sin that he takes and does away with, his righteousness that he gives to us. All of that is made possible through this week. And so I want us to grow in our affections for Christ. Even as we've been studying through gentle and lowly, seeing Christ as fully God and fully man, truly God, truly man, 100% God, 100% man, We'll see that here, even in the Passion Week. And I pray that we would grow in our affections for Christ. So three goals. Grow, or know, number one, we want to know the Passion Week. Number two, apply. And number three, grow. Know, apply, and grow as we go through this study. So let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. And we will dive into the very beginning of Passion Week, the triumphal entry this morning. Father, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts to see Christ as more glorious and more satisfying than anything that this world has to offer. That Jesus would become to us more real, more near, 
more lovely, more beautiful, more majestic. And that by seeing his glory, we would be transformed. God, I pray that we would give ourselves over the course of these next eight weeks to know these events, to rehearse these events, to solidify them in our hearts and our minds. And as we walk away from this season studying the Passion Week, that we would be humbled, be changed, be transformed, and be renewed in our love for your word and our love for our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Our study has to begin at the very beginning. This is a very good place to start. We begin at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry is going to take place on March 29th, 33 AD. March 29th, 33 AD. Jesus is going to die April 3rd, 33 AD. So think late March, early April. That's when the Passion Week is taking place. But in order to understand what takes place on Palm Sunday, we have to go about four months before that, about four months prior to understand the beauty and the majesty of what takes place on Palm Sunday. So I just want to look at two things this morning. I want to see the background to the event of the triumphal entry, and then I want to see the event itself. The background to the event, and then the event itself. So number one, let's start with the background. Turn, if you would, to John's Gospel. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus is in the temple in John chapter 10 during the Feast of Dedication, which is early December. So December 32 A.D. So early December, Jesus is in the temple, Feast of Dedication. It's cold. We're getting into winter here. Uh, it's very similar weather. It's very similar in Israel. So we're getting into winter. You can think of the middle of, of December. It's getting cold. People are wearing uh, more layers. They're trying to um, stay warm as Jesus is teaching, as he's interacting with the Pharisees, as he's talking with them. And he makes a statement. You can see in verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. So this is dedication feast. This is early December. He's in Jerusalem. And if you drop down to verse 31, or we'll start in verse 30, Jesus makes a an insane statement, and if it weren't true, it would be blasphemy. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. This is not one in uh, relationship and goal. This is not, there's so many people that try to say this, this doesn't mean that Jesus is God, that he's equal in essence to everything that the Father is. They try to excuse it away as best they can, but if you just read the next verse, you would see nobody would think that Jesus is saying anything other than, I am God. I am equal with God. Why is that? Verse 31, the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus. He has blasphemed. If Jesus is not God, he has made a blasphemous claim. And so the Jews, rightfully so, if Jesus is blaspheming, the Jews should kill him as a blasphemer. And they pick up stones to stone him. Because of that, if you drop down to verse 39, therefore they were seeking to seize him, but he eluded their grasp, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he stayed there. So he leaves the temple, and he walks 
through their midst. He eludes their grasp, and he goes to a place beyond the Jordan. This is a place called Perea, and this is where John the Baptist began baptizing. So four months before the triumphal entry. I mean, just think about four months ago or four months in the future. We're very close to the events that are going to take place during the Passion Week. Jesus goes to Perea. In Perea, something's going to happen that's going to be very, very significant. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He says, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to stone him. He leaves to go across the Jordan River, uh, and he is staying in Perea. And in Perea, Luke chapter 13 picks up the story. By the way, Luke 13 through chapter 19, Luke 13 through 19, verse 27, fits right in between John 10 and 11. Well, one of the things we're going to do as we go through the Passion Week is harmonize the gospels. That's a word that means to zip them up in their chronology so that they fit together perfectly. Matthew will pick up on some events, and then he says, we don't need to look at these events, and John will pick it up. You remember John's writing way later. You've got the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are all writing about the same time, and they're all looking at about the same events, right? Synoptic uh, sin is together or with optic to see, so they're seeing the same events. John's going to write way later, decades later. He's read all of their Gospels. They've been in circulation for decades. And so John says, what they wrote is true. I want to write from a different vantage point. I want to fill in the gaps. And he does that so well for us as we go through. So we're going to harmonize the Gospels together as we go through. So Luke chapter 13, John drops out. His narrative stops when he says Jesus goes to Priya. He just leaves it there. But Luke's going to pick it up. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, something amazing happens. So at that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus. So Jesus has run away from Jerusalem, eluding their grasp, staying in Perea. It's probably around early January at this point. And the Pharisees say to him, go away, leave here, because Herod wants to kill you. This is the Herod that had killed John the Baptist. It sounds very sweet, like, oh, we want to protect you, but the Pharisees, this is a ploy to get Jesus to go back to Jerusalem so that they can kill Jesus. The Pharisees hate Jesus for a number of reasons that we're going to get into as we go through this study. So Jesus sees through their ploy, and he says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. That is a stinging statement to the Pharisees. I have to stay here, but I will go to Jerusalem because I have to die there because you killed your prophets in Jerusalem. So he says, I'm not leaving right now. I'm not on your time frame, Pharisees. I'm on my time frame. I'll leave when I'm ready to go. And when I go, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. But here's the question. When he gets back into Jerusalem, remember he left with people wanting to stone him to death, right? They were picking up stones to kill him. When he left, he was a man that was wanted for blasphemy and they wanted to kill him. But he says this. If you drop down to verse 35, behold, your house is left desolate to you and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we're around early January. Jesus says, I'm not on your time frame. I'm not going to Jerusalem now, but I will go back to Jerusalem. And when I go back to Jerusalem, 
the, the first time that I step foot into Jerusalem, there will be cheers and crying out with crowds saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember the, the last time when he left, he was a wanted man. They wanted to kill him. And he says, the next time I show up, people will be loving me. They will be cheering for me and they will be crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My Bible has that in all capital letters. That means it's a quotation from the Old Testament, which it is. Psalm 118, verse 26. You know this psalm. This is an insanely messianic psalm. This psalm has so many verses that you know, like this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's not saying this day or the next day. or It's saying a specific day, this day. What's the day that they're talking about? It's not that God doesn't make every day and that God doesn't hold every day and that we shouldn't rejoice in every day. But Psalm 118 is looking to a very specific moment. This day is the day that God has made. And it's the day of Jesus being presented to Jerusalem on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to, to them as Messiah. Here is your Messiah. Follow him. This is that day. There's also verse 25. Uh, oh, Lord, we beseech you, save us now. Psalm 118, verse 25. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. We cry out. We beg of you. Save us now. You guys know that word, save us now, in the Hebrew. You, you know that word. It's hoshana, which we say, hosanna. They're going to say all these things. Jesus says, the next time I show up, we're months away, but the next time I show up, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen. Now, we don't know how long Jesus stayed in Perea. It appears that it's about a month and a half. So somewhere late January, early February, Jesus is going to go back in to Bethany. He's not going to go to Jerusalem yet. He's going to go into Bethany. One last thing in Luke 13 before we pick up Jesus moving to Bethany. In verse 34, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says something that is so captivating to my own affections. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's weeping over his people. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and yet, what does the text say? Some translations say you were unwilling. Some, my Bible says you would not have it. I wanted to do this, but you rejected. We believe in the total sovereignty of God in all things and in salvation. God is the one who makes the first move. God is the one who acts. God is the one who calls. God is the one who saves. But he does so in a way where he woos your heart such that you say, I want him. He says, I've made my offer to you time and time again. And I wanted a relationship with you, but you didn't want a relationship with me. This is so impactful for our understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. We don't want to err on one extreme without preaching the reality of God is crying out, calling to repent, to trust in him, to treasure him. And if you choose not to, that's on you. He's not forcing you to not believe. So Jesus says amazing things in Luke chapter 13. But in Luke chapter 13, so again, go back to John 10, four months before Palm Sunday. Jesus has to leave after the Feast of Dedication. He has to leave because he had just said, uh, I and the Father are one. And they were picking up stones to kill him. So he's a fugitive. He runs away to Perea. 
And in Perea, the Pharisees, the religious leaders say, we want you to go back to Jerusalem where we can, we can get you, we can take you, we can arrest you, we can kill you. And Jesus says, I'm staying here, I'm not going yet, I'm not on your time frame, I'm on my time frame, and I will go back. And the next time that I enter into Jerusalem, people aren't going to kill me or stone me or arrest me. People are going to receive me as Messiah. My friends, if you and I had been there with Jesus, we would have said, no way. Do you remember what happened when we left Jerusalem? They almost killed you, Jesus. Do you think that's just going to flip on its head? That's just going to turn randomly because you've been living in Perea for a couple months? No way is that going to happen. In fact, Thomas says that. The next event that's going to happen that's going to bring Jesus out of Perea is a servant from Lazarus' household going to Perea to say, the one that you love is sick. Please come heal him. That's the, ex that's the next event that's going to take place. In fact, turn to John chapter 11 because we're going to see that event take place. So Jesus in the temple, Feast of Dedication, four months before Palm Sunday. Then he moves to Perea because they pick up stones to stone him. He hides there. The Pharisees say, you should go back. He says, not yet. He waits about a month and a half. And then he's going to go back in February, but not to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Bethany. But remember, when he's called by that servant to go to Bethany, he waits. Number one, he waits. But he says, we will go. And when he says, we're going to go back to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, remember what Thomas says? Thomas says, fine, let's go with him, and we're going to die with him. Like, if we go back there, we're going to die. You're a wanted man. People don't like you. The religious leaders and the people in power, they want you dead. So we better not go back there. Jesus says, we have to go back. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Thomas says, fine, we'll go back, we'll die with you. Everybody knew this would be an impossible thing for the promise that Jesus makes in Luke 13. The next time I enter Jerusalem, people will be cheering and receiving me as Messiah. For that promise to happen, that's going to take a miracle. There's no way that's going to happen. Even his own disciples say, no way that's going to happen. And yet it does. It does. Palm Sunday is Jesus making it happen. So my question is, how does he make it happen? Well, it begins in John 11. Jesus is in Perea, staying safe. A messenger shows up, says, the one whom you love is sick. He's outside of Jerusalem, staying in a city called Bethany. And so Jesus says, let's stay here. They wait four days. Jesus, uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. That's very important for us to know. Uh, Jewish tradition said that the soul, the spirit, would hang over and hover over the body of the deceased individual for three days because maybe it would be raised from the dead. But on the fourth day, the spirit would leave. It's like the spirit's just hovering, going, are we going to be raised? Are we going to be raised? Are we going to be raised? No, fourth day, gone. So in, in our vernacular, we would say on the fourth day, they were good and dead, right? They weren't just dead, they were good and dead. There's no way they're going to be raised anymore. So Jesus waits. He makes this miracle even more stunning, as if raising a man from the dead is not stunning enough. He waits for the entire Jewish people to be even more stunned. And in verse 53 of John 11, we see the reaction. Jesus raises a man from the dead. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are there. The Sadducees are watching because they don't believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. So for Jesus to do this, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks, uh, of their belief system to believe that there is no resurrection from the dead, they believe you die, you stay dead, and that's it. So for Jesus to raise somebody from the dead is to go against their ideology, their philosophy, their theology. 
And so Jesus, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, there are a few people that are very happy, and there are a lot of people that are very angry. And because of that, verse 53, from that day on, from the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I would expect it to read from that day on, everybody was praising him. They wanted to be on his side. They wanted to be with him. They loved him. But no, it says from that day on, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders planned together to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, just a few miles, uh, a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. And he stays there with his disciples. So again, I, I wish we could have the screen behind me with a little map. But if we, if we trace what's happening here in the life of Jesus, four months before Palm Sunday, he's in the, the temple, he's in Jerusalem. I and the Father are one, pick up stones to stone him. He leaves. He goes across the Jordan River to Perea, across the Jordan. And there, the Pharisees say, you need to go back to Jerusalem because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus says, I'm going to go back. I don't believe your ploy here. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back on my time frame, not yours. And the next time that I enter Jerusalem, I, I left it with people wanting to kill me, but I'm going to enter with people wanting to receive me as Messiah. Nobody would have believed that that was possible. Thomas sure doesn't believe it. I wouldn't have believed it. You wouldn't have believed it. Jesus then gets a message from a servant. You need to go to raise Lazarus. At first, it's uh, heal him from his sickness, but Jesus waits so that he dies so that he can raise him from the dead. That's going to happen in February. So February, then March. The end of March is when Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem uh, during the triumphal entry. But because of raising Lazarus from the dead, he's a fugitive yet again. From that day on, they plan to kill him. So he withdraws. He goes to Ephraim. He goes away to Ephraim. He's hiding again. So first Perea, now to Ephraim. Verse 55 of chapter 11 in John. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were seeking for Jesus. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Is he going to come to the feast at all? Is he going to come? Now, why are they asking that question? Well, verse 57 tells us. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anybody knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. He's a fugitive. So he left earlier to go to Priya because he was, uh, there was an attempt to stone him to death. And then he left again because there's a conspiracy going on to kill him. He's a wanted man. There are placards lining the walls that are, that are showing Jesus of Nazareth. If anybody knows his whereabouts, tell us. You'll get a reward. We want him. So he leaves, he goes, to Beth, or he goes to Ephraim. He's a fugitive. And once again, Luke's gonna pick up the story. John says, that's all I need to say. He's on the run, he's a fugitive. But go back to Luke, verse, or chapter 17, verse 11. Luke chapter 17. After staying in Ephraim, he stays there for a little while. It looks to be about two weeks that he stays there. And now we're, we're mere weeks away from Passover taking place. That's why everybody's asking. The last time we saw him, we were only a couple weeks away from Passover, and he had to flee after raising Lazarus from the dead because people wanted to seize him to kill him. So is he going to even show up to the Passover at all? Is he going to be here in Jerusalem at all to celebrate? So from Ephraim... Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. 
And the route is given here in verse 11 of Luke 17. While he was on the way to Jerusalem from Ephraim, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So again, if we had a map, you can look at the map at the back of your Bible, but you can see if you've got Jerusalem's right here, Ephraim's just a little bit above it. You have a, a region of Judea, region of Samaria, region of Galilee, right? Galilee's in the far north, Samaria's in the middle, Judea's in the south. This verse says that he's in Ephraim, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, which is just a few miles. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and as he does so, he's going to pass between Samaria and Galilee. If you take that verse literally, which I believe you should, you have Jesus not going the short few miles this way to Jerusalem, but going this way around. Uh, it's so puzzling that many commentators say well, there's, there's some discrepancy in this verse. There has to be something wrong. He, he wasn't really doing this. He was in the border between Samaria and Galilee. That, that couldn't be the case. Some say uh, he travels uh, around or between. He maybe made a stop in here, but he just went right back. But the verse is abundantly clear. Even in the Greek, it's technically so obvious. As he's going to Jerusalem, he passes through First Samaria, then Galilee. What is Jesus doing? What's he doing? Remember, he made a promise. The next time I enter Jerusalem, people are going to be cheering and receiving me as Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if he had gone from Ephraim to Jerusalem on this little road, a few miles, there are Sadducees, Pharisees, religious leaders lining that road. There are people that are waiting, bounty hunters there, waiting for Jesus to travel back so that they can take him, they can hand him over, deliver him to the chief priests, and kill him. If he goes from Ephraim to Jerusalem this little road, this way, he's going to be killed. And the next time he enters Jerusalem, it will not be to the cheers and the, the, the crowd crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does he do? Instead of going here, he takes about a week and a half he takes the long way around through Samaria. He's going to pick up followers and a, a huge caravan as he goes to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's in the rearview mirror, right? He's going to take the long way around. He's going to go through Samaria. He's going to go through Galilee. He's going to go around the Sea of Galilee. He's going to cross over the Jordan River. He's going to come back. He's going to do so many miracles and bring a crowd around himself so that hundreds, if not thousands of people are joining in with him as he's making his way to Jerusalem. It's about a 90-mile trip. Matthew and Mark tell us about that journey. John doesn't, because John knows Matthew and Mark already told us about that journey. So Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus is healing lepers. He's healing blind Bartimaeus. He's hanging out with Zacchaeus. He's doing so many miracles and bringing a crowd to himself. And then, back in John, turn back to John 12. Jesus is going to end up in Bethany after about a week and a half journey. Chapter 12, verse 1 of John's gospel. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And there's a party that's thrown in Jesus' honor for raising Lazarus from the dead. There's also the parties at the home of Simon the leper, uh, who would obviously be a leper no more because they're having a party at his house. And so Jesus probably healed him too. 
and uh, they're having a party. They're wanting to thank Jesus. Because remember, Lazarus, raised from the dead, really had no chance to thank Jesus because the chief priests, the religious leaders, wanted to kill him, and so he had to leave. Jesus had to run away as fast as he could to Ephraim. So there's a party. This is where Mary anoints Jesus with that costly perfume. Mark 14 tells us about it. John 12 tells us about it. But John gives us the chronology. Six days before the Passover. Passover is going to happen on Thursday. So rewind six days. You get to Friday. Jesus is going to enter Bethany on Friday before the triumphal entry. Friday, Saturday, Palm Sunday. He's there on Friday. And what happens in a Jewish culture when the sun goes down on Friday? It's the Sabbath, right? Sun goes down, Sabbath, everybody stays in their homes. There were these things called Sabbath day journeys. Uh, They weren't linear uh, walking distance. They didn't all have Fitbits so that they could figure out how many steps they had taken and I have to stop. This was created by the Pharisees to try and figure out how far we can go on the Sabbath without breaking Sabbath day laws of journeying and walking too far. So they created these zones. It was a a mile and two-fifths of a zone. So basically, when the sun goes down on Friday, wherever you are, you could draw a circle around yourself and go in any direction a mile and two-fifths. That's your, your Sabbath day zone. That's the only place that you could walk from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Bethany is outside of the Sabbath day zone of Jerusalem. So Jesus stops in Bethany. Sun starts to go down. The crowd that's gone with him as he went from Ephraim all the way around, hundreds if not thousands of people that journeyed with him, sun's going down. They say, hey, this party's for you, not for us. We weren't invited. We're not going to crash it. We're going to book it into Jerusalem and hang out with our families. We're going to get ready. We're going to make the the Passover uh, plans. We're going to start moving in that direction. So they hightail it into Jerusalem. And as they're going into Jerusalem, this huge caravan, they're hearing the people that are asking the questions that were in John 11. What do you think? Is he going to show up at all? You think Jesus is going to show up? No, he's not going to show up. He was a fugitive. They almost killed him during the Feast of Dedication in December, and then they almost killed him again uh, when he raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks ago. He's a wanted man. There's no way he's coming into Jerusalem. And as this caravan that journeyed with him as they hear those questions and those comments and those answers, they go, wait, 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 I, I know he's coming. I know he's going to be here. They go, how do you know? What do you know that we don't? I was with him. I, I was up in Nazareth, and he stopped by, and he grabbed a caravan of people, and we all went with him. We were there with him. We saw him. We saw him do miracles. He's coming. He's going to be here for the Passover celebration. He's going to be here this week. I mean, imagine as a quasi-disciple of Christ, as somebody, your jury's still out on whether or not this man is is worthy to be followed. And now you realize he's showing back up in the city where they've wanted to kill him twice? Man, this guy, he's got guts. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see how he makes his entrance into Jerusalem. I can't wait to see if if the religious leaders are going to attack him and seize him and kill him. So the next question, well, when is he going to be here? Why isn't he here now? Is he here now? When's he going to be here? And the answer from the caravan would have been, well, no, he stopped in Bethany. They're throwing him a party. We didn't want to crash it. Sun went down. Now, Jesus is fine breaking Sabbath day laws because they were man-made. These zones were man-made. Jesus is fine doing that. He's done it a couple times in the Gospels. But he's only done it a couple times in the Gospels. We have no reason to believe that the other times he didn't just abide by them. 
And because he made a declaration that the very next time that I show up into Jerusalem, it'll be to the cheers of people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He knows if I leave on Saturday morning and I crest over the Mount of Olives and I make my way down into the Kidron Valley and go into Jerusalem, as I do that, if it's Saturday morning in a Jewish culture and context, no one's going to be out. So nobody would be there to declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. So what does Jesus do? He lets the sun go down. He's living in Bethany. He's staying there. He lets the sun go down on Friday. He waits all day Saturday. And Sunday is the next time that it would be possible for Jesus to go in with crowds there. He could have gone in on Saturday, but there would be no crowds. And if there's no crowds, his promise doesn't come true. So Jesus stays in Bethany. All the crowds in Jerusalem. By the way, Josephus tells us that there were over 250 million Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This place is abuzz with, with uh, a sense of wanting to destroy Rome. Right? This is Passover. We're celebrating uh, God's people being delivered from an oppressive political enemy. So what a perfect time for God to deliver his people from Rome. The place is rife with a sense and an air about it of sedition. We don't want Rome ruling over us. I believe that's one of the reasons why people will gladly receive Jesus as their Messiah. But as Jesus stays in Bethany, the crowds in Jerusalem are asking the question, is he coming? And the answer is yes, he's in Bethany. We were with him. He's coming to celebrate Passover. Okay, then where is he? Why isn't he here? When's he going to show up? And the answer for when he's going to be there can't be Saturday because we're staying to celebrate the Sabbath in our Sabbath day zone in Jerusalem. We're not going to go to Bethany. He's not going to come to Jerusalem. So it's probably going to be Sunday. And they're probably saying, hey, let's go see him on Sunday. You can come visit him on Sunday. He planned it all. He planned it all from December, early December of 32 AD in the temple when he declares, I and the Father are one, to the moment of the triumphal entry. He planned it all. He made it happen. I mean, just think about if he had gone from Ephraim to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday would not be a thing. Good Friday would not be a thing. He would have been seized and killed. We wouldn't have a huge chunk of our Bible. And we would have no one to place our faith in. That's the background to the event of the triumphal entry. That's why the triumphal entry is so amazing because Jesus wasn't surprised when he rides on that donkey over the Mount of Olives. From Bethany, he's got to crest over the Mount of Olives. He's got to go down the Kidron Valley, up over the other side into Jerusalem. He's not surprised when he sees the crowds. He's able to say, see, I told you so. I made this happen. I prophesied, I promised in Luke 13. I promised you in Luke 13. The very next time I enter Jerusalem, it's going to be to crowds cheering, and they're going to say, Hosanna, and they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what happens? Turn to Mark chapter 11. We've looked at not only the background of the event, number one, but number two, let's look at the event itself, and this will be very brief because you know it, you're familiar with it. The event itself. Verse one, Mark chapter 11, verse one, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethsage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. Immediately they'll send it to you. 
they went away. They found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it, and he sat on the coats and sat on the colt. And then he spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, coats in the road that signifies uh, you can walk all over us, right? They, they put their coats in the road. Rule over us. Be our king. We will be your loyal subjects. Our will is now given to you. You tell us what to do. They spread leafy branches, palm branches. We see these on uh, coins that uh, we, we have shekels or shekelim uh, that we see the, the insignia of a, of a palm branch, of a leafy branch. It was a palm branch, and it was a a signia of an insignia of sign of victory. We have overcome our enemy. We are safe. We are at peace. We have victory. And so what are they saying? They're saying, you can be our king. Walk all over us. And they're putting these palm branches down. They're saying, you are going to be victorious. Our enemy is Rome, and you're going to conquer, and you're going to bring peace to Israel. And Jesus rides in, and what do they say? Verse 9. Hosanna, Hoshana, Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us now. Please save us. We can't save ourselves. And then they say from Psalm 118, verse 24, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's exactly what Jesus said they were going to say. Jesus knew what they were going to say months earlier. And he made it happen. Blessed is he who is the coming kingdom of our father David. He's going to reign over that kingdom. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. There are three beautiful prophecies, Old Testament prophecies. Not only Jesus' promise in Luke 13, but there's three beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament that are accomplished, that are fulfilled in Palm Sunday. They start with M's, so it's helpful to remember them because they all start with M's. Number one, the manner in which he came into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9 says that the Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and then it says the the colt, the baby donkey. Not even just a donkey, but the colt of the donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He rides in on a baby donkey that had never been written, perfectly fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Also, the, the moment the exact day. So we've got the manners prophesied and fulfilled. The exact moment is prophesied. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. There's really two prophecies about the triumphal entry that are given there. But the one for, for us this morning, the moment, the exact moment, Daniel's given a prophecy of time, 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to send the Jews back into Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. That happened in 445 B.C., and if you take 445 B.C. and you add 438 years that Daniel's given the, the amount of time, you add that time to the day you come to the triumphal entry. The exact day was prophesied. That's why Jesus can say, I know the word of God says this. It's going to happen. And so I can tell you in Luke 13, it will happen the next time I show up. I know the day I'm showing up because the day I'm going to show up fulfills the prophecy of the moment in Daniel 9, 24. Finally, the meaning of the triumphal entry. That's just really Psalm 118. So you have the manner, Zechariah 9, 9, Daniel 9, the moment, the exact day, and the meaning, Psalm 118, verses 22 through 26. You see the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Hosanna, save us now. 
Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice. Our Messiah is coming. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is the triumphal entry. But it never would have happened if Jesus had not been wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, knowing what was going on, not walking from Ephraim to Jerusalem this way, but walking from Ephraim to Jerusalem this way, around, the long way around. He made the triumphal entry happen. He wasn't surprised when he saw the crowds. He made it happen. If you and I had been there in Perea, January and February, cold winter months of 33 AD, if you and I had been there and you heard Jesus say, next time I go to Jerusalem, crowds will be there to welcome me as their Messiah, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You and I would have said, no way. No way. You were almost stoned to death. Then they go back to Bethany. You, you're a wanted man. You're a fugitive. You're on the run. You have to hide in Ephraim. No way. How is this all going to turn and change? So brothers and sisters, when Jesus declares this is what is going to happen, you could take that to the bank. This is what is going to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts. It will happen. So we talked at the beginning of our time, three goals. We want to know the events of the Passion Week. And hopefully you know a little bit more about what happened before the triumphal entry, maybe what happened during the triumphal entry. That Palm Sunday is usually one that we know a lot about. And hopefully you grow in your affections for Christ as you see his majesty in, in making these promises and making them come about, being shrewd and, and careful. But how do we apply it? That second goal, how do we apply it? What's the application when Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things, so there's multiple applications. There's not just one thing you're supposed to take away from the triumphal entry. So don't think that when I give you the one that stands out to me, that it's what you all should take away from it. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. You can take something else away from it. But one implication that I see very clearly from the triumphal entry is that if Jesus makes a promise, he will make it happen. If he makes a promise, he's going to make it happen. I want to show you one other promise that he made. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. This is on Tuesday of the Passion Week. So we just looked at four months prior to Palm Sunday, all the way up to Palm Sunday. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Monday, the cleansing of the temple. Tuesday happens uh, teaching in the temple, taking over teaching. There's amazing things that happen on Tuesday. But at the end of Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus is going to say the exact same words that he said in Perea in Luke 13, four months earlier. He says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, and I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He made the promise again. He made the promise, promise once earlier, and it was fulfilled at the triumphal entry. He made the promise again. By the way, the Old Testament tells us there's going to be a time, though Israel now, as a whole, has hardened their hearts to Jesus as Messiah. There are some Jews, uh, we would say Messianic Jews, who believe that Jesus is their Messiah, 
but the majority of Israel does not believe Jesus is the Messiah. They reject him. They're longing for another Messiah. They're longing for a political ruler that will give them peace. Even to this day, when I lived in Israel, there were billboards. Like we would have uh, advertisements on TV that say, you know, this, this uh, advertisement is approved by Joe Biden or by Donald Trump, right? They have billboards in Israel that say the same thing with the face of a very old Jewish man with an enormous beard, and it says, vote for me for Messiah. Like, they're longing for their Messiah, their president, their king. They want peace in Israel. And because Jesus didn't bring peace, they reject him as their Messiah. But Jesus says here, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. And the next time that I do come back, you in Jerusalem, ethnic Israel, you'll receive me as Messiah. I, I wouldn't have believed Jesus the first time he said it. But he made it happen on Palm Sunday. I think we can believe him the second time he said it. We're going to see that in the book of Revelation, right? We're going to see that as we study Revelation, that Revelation during the tribulation is Jesus' missions program to Israel. And Israel is going to come to saving faith in their Messiah. What about for you? Can I just ask your heart, what promises of God do you struggle to believe he will fulfill? I would encourage you to talk about that today. Talk about that maybe as we fellowship during our picnic. Talk about that tonight with your spouse, with your kids, with your family. Talk about that with people, maybe some co-workers tomorrow that you know love Jesus and can hold you accountable to trust in the promises of Christ. What promises of God do you struggle to believe he will actually make good on? Maybe you don't believe that he'll bless you in your obedience. Remember Psalm 73? The psalmist says, Oh, surely the Lord is good to Israel, to those who follow him. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. Why? Because I saw the wicked, and it looked like they were getting away with everything, and they were prospering, and I saw the righteous, and it looked like they were being destroyed. And I thought, there's no reason to be righteous anymore. There's no blessing in obedience. Look at the bad people. Look at the ungodly people. Look at the people that hate you. They're getting everything they want. I might as well join them. And then he says, but I remember. This I recall to mind. This I remember. What does he remember? The trustworthiness of God. He remembers that God is a faithful God. He makes good on his promise. He has promised you will be blessed if you follow him. It's Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not do these things, walking according to the counsel of the wicked, sitting in the seat of the scoffer, doesn't do those, those things. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That man is the one who is blessed. Do you believe that? Or do you struggle like the man in Psalm 73? Do you believe that Jesus Christ brings satisfaction? He has promised that. John chapter 6. Come to me, all who are hungry. I'll give you satisfaction. I'm the bread of life to give you satisfaction. He says in John 7 that he is the living water. He says in John 4 that if you follow him and trust him, springs of living water, eternal life will flow through you to others. Every time we sin, we functionally say, I don't believe that you're all satisfying, Jesus, because I, I need something else to be satisfied. Do you believe the promise that sin does bring death? Do you believe the promise that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. The Lord says, I will not leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, we can say, what can man do to us? God's with us. 
even as we study gentle and lowly, do you believe that you're cherished and valued and loved and treasured by the God of the universe? Matthew chapter 6, you're much more valuable than birds, right? He sees every sparrow that falls. He, see every, he sees every bird that falls, and he looks at you. You're much more valuable. You're made in the image of God. He cherishes you. He knows you. He treasures you. He loves you. Do you believe that? Or what about lastly, do, do you believe that you're going to make it safely home? Do you believe that you're going to make it safely home to be with Christ forever? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's a promise. And you can take every promise to the bank. Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not sword, not suffering, not even your own sinfulness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. Whenever you think of the triumphal entry, I hope and pray that you can go back four months to think of the promise that Jesus made, a staggering one that nobody believed would ever come true. But he made it come true. And therefore, it's not just triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see triumphal trustworthiness that can conquer every fear we have, every doubt we have, every lack of belief, every unbelief in our hearts triumphal trustworthiness in God himself. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for just a, a time to meditate on Christ and on his triumphal trustworthiness. God, we are so uh, timid in our faith, and I praise you that it's not the amount of faith that we have that matters. It's who our faith is in. It's the quality of our faith, not the quantity. Even if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, if it is in you, then we have everything we need. Because it's ultimately not us that's going to keep hold of you and make it to the finish line because of our doing, but it's you keeping hold of us and never letting go of us. That's our security. That's our assurance. We have no other hope. And so, Father, we are gathered today to remind each other, stimulating one another to love and good, de good deeds, and specifically this morning to remind each other that your promises can be trusted. They can be clung to in such a way that we won't let go of you because we know that you are faithful. So, God, we say we believe. Help our unbelief. God, I pray for each person here whether it's struggling to trust one aspect of a promise that you've given, whether it's struggling to trust you for salvation at all. Maybe it's struggling to trust something that you say about yourself, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are faithful. God, I pray that we would bow the knee to you this morning and say, we believe. We know this is who you say you are. Help our unbelief. Father, thank you for your word. Bless our time through this series as we study the life of Christ in the greatest week in all of human history. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.